art scene now with a feature from this past February as part of our year-end art scene retrospective. It's old-fashioned, certainly, but writer Daniel Marlowe swears by it, a good old-fashioned manual typewriter. And he makes his case on behalf of the typewriter in terms of creativity. He explains, distraction-free writing seems to be the buzz these days. In fact, there are dedicated writing apps that have stripped away the formatting doodads, leaving you with a cursor and a blank screen, with the idea that you should focus on your words and nothing else. Great concept. However, what these tools still have is a distraction of your own making the ability to go back and edit what you've just written. It's too easy to want to get things just right before moving on. And while doing this, you've pulled yourself out of the flow of writing, that stream of consciousness where all great ideas lurk, that childlike ability to create and not critique. That's where creativity lives. That's where writing on a typewriter forces you to move the words and ideas forward without the ability to go back and edit. There's a physical sensation to writing that connects your fingers to your brain that is different than a computer. Your brain will sense that you're on the high wire without the safety net of editing and will respond with a creativity survival response. Once you've taken a few steps across the void, you'll feel an exhilaration. New words and ideas will form, balancing your steps giving you confidence to continue. As the words are strung across the page, you'll succumb to a sense of fun. That innocence of creation will return. The sound of the key striking the paper begin to feel like music, and when you stop writing, even for a moment, you'll feel compelled to continue because there's no reward in silence. Your words are your music. They are the soundtrack to your story, and the typewriter is the instrument. words of Daniel Marlowe in Typewriter Review. And if she's listening, we can imagine that Jenny Hill is nodding. She's a writer and performance artist who truly lives her life in a creative way, and she adores typewriters. It may have something to do with her dear grandpa and his typewriter, as we'll soon learn. But what's interesting about Marlowe's essay is that he begins with the idea of distraction and the way that's always supposed to be bad. He considers certain distractions a boon to the creative process, as he's just explained. And just as fascinating is that Jenny Hill began developing an important performance piece around the notion of creating stories and distraction. How do you make stories when you're always being distracted? And in this one-person piece, she uses just two props, a ball of red yarn and a typewriter. Now, this is all my gloss, but Marlowe uses the high wire without a safety net to talk about the creative risks artists take. It's a nice footnote that Jenny Hill loves and practices the circus arts. And Marlowe writes, as the words are strung across the page, 
you'll succumb to a sense of fun. We'll soon learn that the backdrop to Jenny's special performance piece is a clothesline strung across the stage with words and bits of paper clipped there along the way. And she's always willing to take creative risks and to learn from whatever results. And then there's Marlowe's statement, your words are your music. And that may well be a good way to enter into the poems Jenny Hill creates. In her new collection, there are songs and singing and pianos and harps and Bach and fugues. And yet she's not afraid of silence. She values silence, like this moment in the poem Mother Time. I write this now in the moment, and now that moment is gone, and we are here, you and I, standing on the grass, waiting for the next word. So time, the moment, and waiting are crucial for Jenny Hill and her mother. The book is titled Year in the Blanks, and it grows out of the onset of her mother's dementia and the literal waiting for words, words that are there. Oh, they're there but they just won't come. Jenny Hill describes Year in the Blanks as a collection of poems that explores the dreamscapes of memory, identity, belonging, and loss. We had a chance to speak with her by phone about the new book, and we began with her ties to northeastern Pennsylvania. I still feel like northeastern Pennsylvania is home. I grew up there, and then I left, and then I came back... <laughs> and I raised my daughter, Helen, and Dan and I lived in Edwardsville, and we ran Paper Kite Press, which was a press devoted to poetry, and it was always my dream to get a space where we would be able to share uh, the work of others, and we found an affordable storefront on Main Street in Edwardsville, across from the fire station, <laughs> and we ran performances and poetry readings and art events. For a while, it was a gallery and performing arts space. For several years, it was that. And then we turned it into a bookstore. So we had an independent bookstore for a while. And then we moved. So we moved to Lancaster. And we lived downtown for a few years and then moved closer to my mother, who was living in Ephrata. So I have so many good memories of my time in northeastern Pennsylvania, and I have so many friends and ties to that area and just the landscape. Every time I drive and visit, I just feel like I'm immediately at home when I'm there. I think I'll always feel that way. And when we read your biography, we hear you're an arts educator and a poet and a performer. I'd like to think that rather than you are a poet, you are a performer. You perform, you make poetry, you do poetry. It's more <laughs> process because you are so involved in creativity, spontaneity. You really are someone who believes in serious play. And then ultimately what might come out of that is a poem. But don't you have a sense of life as playful and creative and you like to inspire others? Yes, very much so. I'm a verb. <laughs> I'm, I'm, always, I'm, I'm moving, and I love what you just said. I'm, I'm very much a doer, and 
my mother always said, you know, you like to throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and see what sticks. <laughs> and I was always like super involved and and kind of in my own little world as a kid. Uh, I remember trying to glue ice together. You know, it was my own sort of outdoor science experiment, and obviously it didn't go very well. <laughs> but it was an experiment, and it was one that really, you know, I really remember it. And I feel like, yeah, you have to play. You have to try and, and stay curious about things. That's what is exciting about being human and, and living in the world, you know. Words, and even letters themselves, you have been so playful with words. Yes. <laughs> and discovering new ones. I have a terrible new habit, Erica, of in the morning. I get up really early in the morning, and my phone is next to the bed because it charges there, and I've been doing the New York Times spelling bee every morning. A terrible thing. I, I need to stop doing that, but it is so exciting to get the pangram. It's a nice challenge <laughs> if, you, if you're a word weasel and, and like a challenge, it's worth exploring. But anyway, yeah, I've, I've always, always enjoyed playing with words, rearranging letters. I think some of that comes from my grandfather, who we called Pam Pal, because my sister couldn't pronounce grandpa or grandpop or whatever. She just, she called him Pam Pal. So that's what he was to us. And he loved words and he had a typewriter and I remember him taking that typewriter out and rather than just, you know, typing words on it, he would create images with the letters. So he used to create a cat using the capital letter Q and a lowercase O and a couple of V's. But, you know, he had to take the paper out and rearrange it and put it back in and hit the V. So it would create the, the ear of the cat. And, you know, that kind of quiet, subtle lesson in looking at a machine in a different way, looking at a machine as it can be tinkered with, played with, you know, and he was creating images with letter forms. And that was very early in my life. He died when I was six. So it's a really early memory. And it's one that has just stayed with me. I'm fascinated by how those memories just sort of seep in and then become part of the narrative thread of your life without, without, even, uh, without you really even realizing it until later when you're maybe thinking about it and reflecting. So I was asked a question recently about, about words and language, and that memory came up, and it was one that I hadn't thought of in a very long time. But I was so happy to remember him in that way. You know, it was like a very, also, you know, a lesson in... Um, <laughs> in the value of little, and I'm putting little in quotes, entertainments, you know, that completely captured my imagination and so much more. You know, he was showing me possibility and it really stuck. And of course, there's that wonderful sound a typewriter makes when the key hits the paper. It's multisensory in that way, too. It's a very physical, and I think of it like an instrument. It's sort of like a piano in a way. You know, it has keys and it has sound. It produces sound and it's very tactile. And, you know, there are whole worlds that live inside of typewriters. Think of all the stories that have been written, all the poems, all the letters, all the communication. So, yeah, it's a 
super evocative machine <laughs> and one that isn't around anymore except for the ones that are floating around in, you know, museums and and secondhand shops, attics, garages, <laughs> basements. I have a friend that knows I have an obsession with typewriters. And before we moved, when we were at Paper Kite, I had 16 typewriters, which is ridiculous. I mean, nobody should have that many typewriters, but they were around the the shop and people could use them. And then when we moved, I gave away and sold some. And now I'm down to one, two. I, g- I just gave an electric typewriter to a friend's daughter. I have two that I can use. One is very, it's a 1937 Royal. So it's one of those big, heavy typewriters. And it works really well. I feel lucky to have it and that it works and, you know, it's been repaired you know, I just realized how how evocative and important they are to me because I did a show, and this is somewhat related to the collection of poems. When we were living in Akron, which is five minutes from Ephrata, very close to my where my mom was living, we rented a house that had a, a little garage attached to it. And I was so missing doing our open mics and performances and things that I turned I turned our garage into a theater space a little black box theater. So I backed the car out one day and parked it on the parking pad and announced to Dan that I would be putting up curtains. (laughs) We would no longer be parking the car in there. And he was so patient and so kind and (laughs) tolerant. Like, okay, yes, that's fine. I needed a space to practice too. I didn't have, I was practicing my circus stuff at the gym I was trying to build a one-woman show, and you really can't show up at your local rec center with a typewriter and a ball of yarn and take over the aerobics studio and, you know, start moving around and muttering to yourself. <laughs> or people look at you funny, you know? And so I I decided the garage in the space is open enough. It's not huge, but one-car garage. So I turned it into a little black box theater, and I would go in there every day and build this show that I knew I wanted to do something that had to do with what it's like to try to tell a story and something that what came out, it was about writing a story, but the first iteration of it, the the one that I performed in Philadelphia ended up being a little bit more about being distracted by things as you are trying to create. And it had, it had movement in it. But it also had dialogue. I, I spoke. There were projections. It was what I would consider kind of a busy first draft of a show. And when people came in to the performance space, they were invited to answer a prompt. And the question was, name something that you saw today that was beautiful. And those writings then each audience member was invited to come up onto the stage before the show started. And there were these closed lines toward the back of the stage that they could hang their writing on. So that was part of the, the set was audience writing. And it was up there the whole time, although my, my character didn't notice it until the end. And then the end of the, the show is the reading, the collective reading of all of those pieces, which of course created a poem. My mom was present for that first show and that meant a lot to me to have her there because she knew that it was something that meant 
a lot to me that I was, you know, I had been quietly working in the garage on it. <laughs> she was kind of used to me doing strange things, and this was just another one of my creations, and she was always so incredibly supportive of both me and my sister, you know, any kind of creative endeavor. She was, she was all in. She was 100% in, and she was, she was there for that performance, and I'll, ne- I'll never forget it. Never forget seeing her in the audience. And she was starting to have some difficulty at that point. She was having difficulty with mobility, with walking. So it was a big deal for her to, you know, make the trek into Philly and be present for the show. And but it was just a delight to have her there and a really good memory. And then she started having more and more issues with uh, memory and balance and spatial things. So you know, there was a lot of concern (laughs) and she fell and broke a shoulder and had to go through a bunch of physical therapy and had some surgery. And so it was, it was a rough couple of years. And during that time, I, I kept, I kept creating. It was harder to create. I kept writing and I knew that that show, which was titled A Lonely, a word that I made up I knew that that show needed to be something else, something different. And I was asked by Barry Kornhauser at the Ware Center, which is uh, part of Millersville University. It's their performing arts center. He asked if I would perform the show. And I said, yes. And then I gave myself a horrendous back injury. <laughs> and I was unable to do the show in March when he asked me to perform. And that that actually was a good thing because I ended up having some time then to play with the show a little differently. And I recreated it without words, without any words, without any projections. I just, I relied solely on my body to tell the story. So it's all movement. And the only props are a table, a typewriter, a little blue chair, and a ball of red yarn. And that's what, that's what that show ended up becoming, a physical theater piece all about telling a story, trying to tell a story and getting lost in it and forgetting, forgetting parts and coming back to it. So I was, in a sense, like very much living through with my mother memory and what it means, you know, who are we when we forget our stories? And poems kept coming. I mean, I wrote definitely as a way to just to <laughs> to to cope. You know, it was it was hard in many ways to navigate my relationship with my mom. It was so hard for her. She would never. She was always such an independent person, and all of a sudden, and and I really mean, all of a sudden, she needed help. And she did not want it. <laughs> and she certainly didn't want it from her youngest daughter. So we used to get into these these squabbles. But we also, once she got the diagnosis of dementia from a really wonderful nurse who was just so caring, we were very lucky to have her. It was it was a relief for for my mom to be given that diagnosis. I mean, she cried. But days later, she said, I, I, I can talk to my friends about this now. 
You know, I think she had been hiding. She'd been working really hard for a very long time to hide the fact that she was forgetting things and that she was losing her ability to to balance her checkbook and do things like that. So hearing what was going on with her had a name, even though this was something that she didn't want to. It's a diagnosis no one wants, right? It's losing your mind. It is a scary, scary place. But she, I think she felt relieved to know what was going on. And eventually, when she started losing, (laughs) she had a hard time. She used to struggle with words, which was super cruel. I mean, this is my... My mom loved words, and she was an excellent writer, an amazing writer, and loved games. We always played Scrabble, and she was excellent. She used to beat me all the time. (laughs) Loved to read. So to lose language like that just seems so cruel. But we we discovered that we had this, like, fun way of communicating when she'd forget a word in the middle of a conversation, which could happen at any moment. It happens to all of us at some point. You're in the middle of saying something, and all of a sudden the word, you just can't find the word that you're trying to say. She was saying something about her hand, or she was trying to get at the word hand, and she said, what is it? The thing. What is that thing? The thing, the thing, the thing. And she's shaking. She was shaking her arm (laughs) and her hand, you know. What is that thing? The thing, the thing. At the end of your arm. And we laughed. Oh, your hand. It's your hand. And we used to do these almost like a game of charades where if if she couldn't access the word, I would say, Well, what does it what does it look like? Can you draw it in the air? Can you can you move like it? You know, how does it move? What color is it? You know, and we would just do a kind of twenty questions or then it would be, you know, movement and that often resulted in just serious laughter. Like we would just laugh so hard trying to get at whatever the word was. I'd be guessing and she'd say, no, 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 it's not that. My mom saying, where, oh, where, something about Ohio. Why, oh, why? Yes, why, oh, why, oh, did we ever leave Ohio? And musicals were a big part of her life. My mom was a theater person. She did props for a local theater for many, many years. She was a props mistress very skilled at making things or just making things appear as if by magic, which we know is not magic. It's hard work finding good props. But yeah, so so a lot of the songs, the things that she would remember would be related to theater, which was always fun because that's a memory for me too, grow, growing up in the theater. Here's the verse in the new collection by Jenny Hill that cites this song. Is your mother a burning song? Mine is. I may be one too. A lyrical collage. She bursts into why, oh, why, oh, did we ever leave Ohio? When I mention how I drove to Indiana, the map of her mind, now a musical. We understand each other better this way.
I sing along with her, punch up the lines in an alto foghorn, so she'll laugh and remember. Jenny Hill, writer, performance artist, educator, all-round creative artist and person, talking with us about her new collection, Year in the Blanks. You can go right to her website, actsofgenius.com, and genius is J-E-N-N-I-U-S, actsofgenius.com, the new book, Year in the Blanks, and it's Jennifer Hill, Jenny Hill. A conversation with Jenny Hill from February 2021 as part of our year-end art scene retrospective.